the confession faith this week. So we'll dig right in. Uh, this is the very last paragraph, um, chapter 33, paragraph 3. And if, if there are any here who don't have a copy, we have on the back table, uh, just raise your hand if you don't have a copy, that little gray book, okay? Um, Steve, if you don't mind, grab a couple of those uh, for the howls. Did anybody else raise their hand that I miss? It's in the back of the hymnal, too. Is that what you're saying, Chris? Thank you. Uh, no, Chris was reminding me it is also in the back of the hymnal. So, so there's absolutely no excuse. All right. Let's, uh, let's read, then, chapter 33. Paragraph 3. Now, this chapter deals with the Last Judgment. We've already looked at these first two paragraphs dealing with um, what God will accomplish on that day of judgment, why it's such a blessing to us that it will happen, and why God has revealed it to us that we might have that comfort. And that is really what this third paragraph deals with, two aspects of the revelation of this day of judgment. Why has God uh, told us? And the first, the first point in this third paragraph is that he wants us to be certainly persuaded that there is a day of judgment to uh, warn us, to caution us, to deter us from sin, and to give greater consolation to us in all of our struggles. There are many things that appear to go unanswered in this world, many acts of injustice, many sins, innocent life is taken, uh, many things that are done that are wicked in God's sight, but they will be answered and they will be uh, put right on that day in a way that no one can question. We will all stand in awe of our God. And so that's what the first point is, that there, this day has been revealed. It's been revealed as a warning to us. Bear in mind, you'll stand before the Lord and give an account to him of every thought and every word and every deed. <laughs> Keep that before your mind every day so that you wouldn't um, grow brazen and uh, begin to live as though today is all there is with a mind of unbelief. And then the second thing uh, being there is great comfort for the godly in their adversity, realizing that this, this is just a short time of trial before the Lord returns and there is relief and that for the children of God. Now, we come to Romans chapter 8, and this is the last reference in that first part of paragraph 3, Romans chapter 8. And so this, this has particular uh, significance in, in the matter of the comfort of the godly in their adversity. And so we'll read, beginning actually in verse 1, we're particularly encouraged to notice verses 23 through 25. And we will uh, note those as we read them. But let's begin in Romans 8, verse 1, because this is where Paul begins this argument that leads to those verses. So Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, what the law weakened by the flesh 
could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pause for just a moment and note what is being said here. First of all, who do these promises belong to? And they belong to those who are believing in Jesus. And what, what characterizes them? Well, they're no longer in the bondage of sin, but they've been set free, and they're filled now with the Holy Spirit. Now, that becomes the theme of this whole chapter, is the amazing work of the Holy Spirit, the amazing fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. As we think about heaven, and then we look back to the Garden of Eden, what was it? that made Adam and Eve susceptible to temptation? What left them open to that? Well, they were created in righteousness. They had no sin within them. They weren't started on the wrong path. But they were left alone to be tested. They were given the, the free opportunity to hear the word of God and then to hear the enemy of God who would come and say, Have you heard? What God said? Oh, that's not true. And then they were left. Well, what will, you, what will you decide? Who will you believe? And, of course, sadly, the, the deceiver deceived the woman and tempted her, and she gave to her husband, and he ate with her. Well, what, what's the difference then as we look to heaven? How is it that when we finally are in heaven, it won't just be starting all over again? How is it that we won't have the possibility of sin ahead of us? We won't be like Adam and Eve. We will be joined to the Lord Jesus, joined to God himself in a way that no one could imagine. We will be filled with his Holy Spirit and joined to him in such a way that he is our fortress and protection. And he keeps us forever. Just as he can't be stained by sin, he can't be tempted by sin, he can't be touched by sin, well, he is going to so fill us and so join us to himself and will be in his presence forever kept by that presence and full of joy and joined to the Lord our God in a way that far exceeds even the bliss and the joy of being the children of God as Adam and Eve were 
in the Garden of Eden. And so that's why the Spirit is described over and over as the down payment, as the earnest of what is yet to come. We do have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. He's already at work within us. And as John would say, he's confident that no one can take one of God's children away from him. No one can snatch them out of his hand. And as he would say in the epistles, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so that's the promise, if you will, that we can't be lost, we can't perish, we can't fall into sin entirely, we will be sanctified, we will be brought into the presence of God and fully sanctified and glorified, and the Holy Spirit has come to live within us in a way that he will never leave. It will only deepen the relationship that we have, and his presence will, will only more and more control and, and fill us until the day we're brought into the very presence of God and see the face of God in Jesus Christ. And that is brought to a glorious conclusion. And so that is, that is why the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. He is the, the proof. God himself is who is with us. And so that, that has tremendous significance to us, whether we're thinking about the, the trials and the struggles of sin. Paul encourages his, his readers and all of us as the children of God, never, ever become um, discouraged or complacent, certainly. Never have a defeated mindset in this struggle with sin because you must continue you must continue to fight. You have been set free from the chains of the slavery of sin. And, and the Lord knows our weakness. And he knows that even his own children, with that Holy Spirit and no excuses, what do we tend to do? We, we do fall into our old sinful ways at times. But though a righteous man falls seven times, he does not perish for the Lord holds him. And what we see in these verses is that there is a, a conclusion anticipated. What we're beginning to see then is the beginning, but what follows? We're not left just with this ignorance of what will come in a very, very painful, difficult, discouraging struggle. And there is uh, coming a day when... We will not be uh, fighting this fight with sin any longer because the Lord Jesus, who leads us from victory to victory, will complete his victory over sin within us. And we will no longer grieve the Holy Spirit within us with our sin, but we'll be joyfully giving ourselves to him. And so notice, notice the, the, the logic that he, that he lays out here. In verse 9, you, however, are not in the, the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, notice, notice that language. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
So, so again, there is a struggle going on within us. If Jesus Christ himself is in us, fighting against sin, how's that going to end? The Lord Jesus is always the victor. There's none stronger than him. He will bind the strong man and plunder his house. And he's going to do that within each of us progressively. And so what is the promise that he then goes on to consider in verse 11? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So it, it, it is drawn from the fact that we belong to Jesus, we're joined to Jesus, we're filled with the very spirit of Jesus Christ, the very spirit that raised him from the dead. He's not going to lose, and he's going to experience in us everything that he's already accomplished in himself. He's already been raised from the dead. Well, if he lives within us, is he going to leave us in the clutches of death? No. He's going to raise us also. And so in verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice, how is it that we can do that? It's not of ourselves, but it's by the Spirit. It's that almighty Spirit of God within us that overcomes sin, that accomplishes our sanctification, that gives us the strength to put to death the deeds of the body and brings us to this glorious redemption. In verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's what the testimony of the Holy Spirit within us is. We, we don't necessarily hear an audible voice, but the Spirit nonetheless is testifying within us, bearing a witness with our spirit, which says what? You belong to me. You are my child. I'm not going to let you go. I, I am going to complete this work of salvation within you. And so what does that mean? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And what is, what is it that necessitates the suffering? Why do we have to suffer? Well, it's, it's not from any perversion in God. There's only one reason why we have to suffer, and it's our sin. It's the wages of sin that brought death. It's through sin that death entered the world, and it is through sin that suffering exists. When we get to heaven and sin is finally removed fully from us, what do we read? There's no more suffering. There's no more sorrow. There's no more crying or tears. And so we're suffering in, in this world in consequence of our sin. It's because of sin that there is suffering in this world. And we are required, as, the, as those joined to Jesus, 
We have to see sin put to death. We've already seen that language here. By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. Well, which body are we talking about? Our old sinful self. We're talking about what Paul describes as, I no longer live. I've been crucified with Christ. That's suffering. That's painful. You're cutting away. You're putting to death. These, these terms aren't just empty metaphors. They truly describe a war being waged within you. And you must be, as a child of God, on his side of that war, fighting with the Holy Spirit against an old sinful nature, putting off the old self, as Paul would say, to put on the new self. Well, is that fun? No, that's painful. That's suffering. And that's, that's what's being accomplished even in all of the other, what we think of as unrelated acts of suffering. What is God accomplishing in our lives? We read in Romans 8, as we're about to, that there is a good purpose in all of it. What is that good purpose? It is to accomplish this putting off the old man. Why is it that we, we have difficult days? You know, we, we could at times be a Job, and it's not so much that there was some glaring sin in our life that, that we're being disciplined for, but nonetheless, even then, Job needed that in his life. He needed to learn to trust God in a way that he hadn't before. He needed to be willing and to prove before God and man that his faith would be sustained, that it wasn't because of all of these blessings that he served the Lord, that God was faithful even in a case where he took it all away from him, and he was the one who would give it back to him in his good time. And so it wasn't even though Job's friends were wrong, it's not that it was just a meaningless, empty exercise that Job was just caught up in, some contest between God and the devil. No, there was still, Romans 8, 28 was true for Job, even in those sufferings. And so that's, that's the necessity of suffering. We are suffering with him. Now, Jesus suffered because of sin, not his own sin, but all of the suffering that Jesus underwent was because of sin. He came and he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin. He suffered in the consequences of sin with us. He was born of a woman, born under the law, born into this world, cursed by sin. His body also sharing the infirmities and the weaknesses that came because of sin, even though he had none. And then, of course, he endured all of the persecution of a sinful world against the Son of God. And he endured being crucified upon the cross. All of that because of sin. Not his own, but nonetheless, our suffering because of sin is a suffering with him. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, was it painful that it caused suffering to Jesus for us to be delivered from sin and to be brought to glory? Absolutely it was. And it must also, we are going to have to taste of that pain and suffering in our own lives to be delivered from the sin that Jesus paid for 
the process of being washed clean by the blood of Jesus is not a painless one. It requires cutting away and putting off things that are even a part of ourselves in our sinful natural state. And so, what are those are the sufferings. Notice verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so no one, no one who goes through that looks back on it saying, are you kidding? All of that suffering and this, this is what the reward is? No, it is so much so that it's all of grace. We'll get there and say, well, I did, it did hurt to have my old sinful nature cut away from me by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. It was hard. It did cause tears and suffering and sorrow. But, God, you have done this for me. This is all of your grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord, is the song in heaven. No one's there saying um, that they paid for what they are receiving with their suffering. <laughs> that That's insignificant that's not even worth talking about compared to what God has accomplished for me he didn't have to save me his son is the one who who bore my sorrows and sustained me through the process of being sanctified and his spirit was the one within me giving me the strength to put off to put to death the deeds of the body and so the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, it's just hard for us to comprehend what those verses are saying. When Adam and Eve sinned, God could have just stamped them out right there. That would have been the end of it. But he had a purpose of redemption to defeat, to overthrow the purpose of his enemy. And even though these who were intended to be his faithful children have now fallen and joined his enemy... He's not going to let that stand. He's going to put an enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And it was because of God's redemptive purpose that he cursed the world. He cursed the world looking forward to the accomplishment of redemption. Why? Because if men and women were to continue living with sin in their hearts that had yet to be resolved, they had to live with the consequences of sin. You can't have sin without the consequences. And, and so it was because God's intention to redeem the children of men that he cursed this world so that they would taste the bitter fruit of their sin until he would deliver them completely from it. And so that's the second thing we see here, that, the, that God cursed the creation. He put it to futility, a world he had made to be full of life and joy and beauty. 
is now going to experience decay and death and strife and violence. That's all because of the curse that God put upon it. And he was not willing to just throw this world away under this curse, but only for a temporary time, only for a limited time, he subjected the creation to futility. He subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so God was unwilling to put an end to the children of man, so he cursed the world for their sake. It was to make the world they lived in bear the marks of the consequences of their sin. But it was done so in hope. It's done so with an ultimate goal of victory and restoration. And God's going to restore. It's going to set it free, as we read in verse 21. The world from its bondage to corruption. And it's going to be made new again without all of those consequences of sin when God completely removes sin itself from the picture again. And that's accomplished when the Lord Jesus returns, he pays in full all of the outstanding debts of, that sin has incurred that are not covered by the blood of Jesus. And he casts into judgment, away from his presence, those who rejected the gospel. And then we see the new heavens and the new earth established. And so in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, what is that talking about in verse 23? We wait eagerly for adoption as sons. Well, we have been adopted, the Scriptures tell us, and that's true. We've been legally adopted, but we've, we've received the message from heaven. You've been adopted. We're about to be taken home to our Father. That's what this is talking about. It's, it's the, the full experience of that adoption where we've, we've received the letter, God has adopted you, and we've received the Spirit as the first fruit. So we're not left alone as little orphans. But we've not yet gone home to be with our Father. And that's what this is speaking about. We're waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now that's, that's God's perspective on all of world history so far, even continuing on to show us, well, this is how I'm going to bring it to a conclusion. And it's given to encourage us. I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to just look down into the details of every day, the hardships, the difficulties, and lose sight of this great purpose that's being accomplished. And every day just feels like a battle in and of itself, forgetting that God has a purpose. He's moving all of this too. None of this is for no, for no reason. And that's what then leads into a verse we all know, but I think perhaps we don't 
fully understand what it's talking about at times. In verse 26 through 28, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So what is the will of God? It's that glorious purpose of redemption and restoration. It far exceeds what we tend to think in terms of. Lord, this hurts. Please make the hurt stop. There's nothing wrong with praying for relief, but why is God bringing pain into your life? There's a reason. And he's accomplishing something through that for your good far far exceeding what you understand. And that's why it speaks about that spirit that is within us is actively interceding for us. The Holy Spirit who lives within us and is sadly at times grieved by a hardness of heart in the child of God, as we read in Ephesians, is interceding for us in terms of what we really need the accomplishment of of the deliverance from sin and making us into the image of Jesus Christ so that we can enter into the glory and the fullness of that adoption that we've only tasted of yet. That's what the Spirit's concern is, far more than our discomfort or comfort. Um, we, We could picture ourselves as requiring some desperately needed surgery and our thought being, Lord, please make this cutting stop. Well, that's, that's again, the Lord's tender and patient with us. We shouldn't um, feel as though we can't lay any burden upon our heart. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And he's the one that gives you the strength to bear up under all of the suffering. But understand that it was there for a purpose. It's accomplishing something in the hand of the Lord, and we pray that it can be accomplished more speedily with a tender heart rather than requiring repeated operations due to the hardness of heart. We do pray for that. But notice in uh, in verse um, 27, he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And here's the verse we all, we all remember. Let's, let's not forget this one. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose? It's the deliverance of his children from sin. And then the full deliverance of his children from the consequences of sin. And then the deliverance of this world from the curse of sin. And bringing us all into his presence fully redeemed and restored and glorified that's his purpose and so when we when we remember that we shouldn't think in lesser categories you know god's going to cause all things to work together for our good and we think in terms of something less in terms of of what that means god god fulfilled that promise in the life of every one of his children that's kind of sobering to realize We would like to think that means we're going to be blessed in every category, outwardly, inwardly, with peace, with safety. 
That's what we would like to see. But this promise was fulfilled for someone like John the Baptist who spent his life serving the Lord in hardship and with contention and calls out an enemy of Christ for his rebellion against God in King Herod and gets thrown in prison and ultimately executed for it. And God fulfilled this promise and this purpose just as truly for John as he will for each one of his children. And so the Lord works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He certainly doesn't use the same circumstances. This is amazing to think about for any of us. None of us have the exact same experience in this life. And for all of us, God is making this purpose be accomplished and he's causing all things in all of our lives as his children to accomplish that purpose. And so we're reminded again, well, what is that purpose in verse 29? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the purpose that he is causing all things to work together for, to accomplish, in order that he might be, picking back up in verse 29, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to see God bless with life and a family, to see children running around, and to see that is the, the image here, that God is going to have not just his eternal son, but he is going to have many brothers of that son in his home who bear his likeness. You're going to look at them, look at us, and say, well, you must be the child of God. You look like Jesus. And that's what God has predestined, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. Now, if you think about that, that, again, it's pretty sobering to realize, now, if I look at Jesus in the scriptures, and now look at myself in the mirror, there's a lot of conforming to be done. And that's, again, that's not, God pro didn't promise, and this is going to be easy, quick, and it won't hurt. He's going to work in our lives as long as he gives us breath in this life, accomplishing this. And he uses all of the sorrow and the travail of life in a world that is cursed by sin to accomplish this very thing. And then in verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's almost looking back as though it's all done. Because that's how certain the purpose of God is. He's, he had this plan. Well, how's it coming? How's that plan coming? Well, God is inexorably moving toward the conclusion. He, he has predestined. He's called. He is justified. He sent his son and crushed him on the cross to justify us. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's none lost in the purpose of God. Every one of these children that he predestined to be conformed surely will be conformed to the image of his son. And so that should be the focus of our own prayers and, and what we're desiring and striving for. That sweetens and, and helps us in the afflictions to remember 
there is a purpose. And, and I know what the purpose is, Lord. I know, I know how far I am from the Lord Jesus in my character, in my thinking, in my heart. And I know it's not going to be easy. So give me patience. Give me a submissive spirit. Help me to even actively work, not just passively submit. Help me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is Christ in me, both the will and the work, his good pleasure, as Paul writes in Philippians. And so that is what our confession points us to in terms of the greater consolation of the godly and their adversity. It's not just that we're promised it will end someday, but it has intention and purpose. It has to be done. We have to get from point A to point B to become image bearers as we need to be. It's very imperfect, and there's a lot of work to be done in our lives. And so it does, it gives us great consolation that the Lord can use, just like he used the hate and the jealousy of Joseph's brothers to accomplish something good. He will use the hate and the jealousy of even unbelievers with careful control and direction perfectly to accomplish the suffering that we must have in the process of putting to death sin because as long as we have remaining sin, we will taste of the consequences of sin. That is an unescapable truth. All right, well, let's look at Matthew. I, t- I declare we're going to run out of time again. I don't know. Y'all, I don't know if it's, it's me or it's you. I think it's y'all. Matthew 24, verse 36. Now, this starts us on the second half of this paragraph. What we just finished looking at was why it's so important to know that this day is coming. What does that mean to the child of God, to know that? The second point is, why has he left the day unknown in terms of, well, when does that day come? Why has he left it unknown? Well, the confession says, so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So in Luke... I'm sorry, Matthew 24, verse 36. We'll try to look at these more quickly. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So it is 
not to hope deferred makes the heart sick, as the Proverbs say, but it is to keep, a, to keep hope looking to Jesus and to keep expectation alive and to keep us vigilant and, and focused upon, Lord, here's what I want to be found doing when you come. And I need to do that again today because, Lord, in your timing, one day will be the day. One day you're going to come. And I, I'm thankful that you haven't told me that I know it's 10 years from now. What would my sinful heart do? I've got time. I've got plenty of time. I've got 10 years. What would generations of men have done? For thousands of years now since this was written, the people of God have been taught to live expectantly. Because truly, if it's not the Lord's return, uh, we surely will be called before him suddenly. And so this is how the Lord Jesus teaches on this. It, it is not just that we don't know, but it's good that we don't know. That we should live looking for Again, the imagery, it's not to be literally interpreted. Verse 42, therefore, stay awake. It's the, the idea of, of being vigilant, of being uh, found doing what the Lord would have us do. We don't know on what day our Lord is coming. And again, I'll just quickly note this reference to the days of Noah. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. What's, what's the uh, corollary there? Well, in the days of Noah, what was it? It was a sudden judgment of God against sin. They didn't expect, they had even heard Noah for a while, it would seem. He's described as a preacher of righteousness in Peter's epistle. He had been warning them, I'm pleading with you, turn away from these wicked sins. And heed the warning of God, he's sending a flood upon the earth. He's told me to build this boat. And no one listened. All the way up to the very day of the flood, it was business as usual. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. You remember, it says God shut the door. And when God shut the door, that was it. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Well, this, this language of being swept away by the judgment of God that's coming upon sin is what's picked up in these next phrases. As though to tell us, well, it's not going to be uh, as in the days of Noah in the sense that only eight persons are saved. But nonetheless, a day of sweeping judgment has come. You better... You better Repent, you need to be like Noah. You need to seek the mercy of God and live according to his direction and not according to your own heart. But in verse 40, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. I think that's a, a, a description of the, the judgment of God coming, like in the days of Noah, sweeping them away. It's going to take some. Uh, not all, because some will be looking for the Son of Man. But you'll, you'll be living side by side, shoulder to shoulder, with some people who will not be prepared. And just like that flood swept the people away in Noah's day, suddenly the coming of the Son of Man will be 
a, a great shock and will bring great dismay upon those who, is, who have not repented of their sins. And it will be too late, just as in the days of Noah. It will be too late when the Lord comes. Down in Mark chapter 13, Mark chapter 13, verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. In verse 35, therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And then in Luke chapter 12, verse 35, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. And then lastly, Revelation chapter 22, verse, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. So for the child of God, it is a day of great relief and comfort that is coming. And time, as, as the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Don't, don't count on, I'll work on salvation tomorrow. Uh, it may not come in terms of those who are hearing the gospel message. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for revealing these things to us, to show us your purpose and what you are accomplishing, to explain to us why it is that we live in a world marked by the curse of sin, why our bodies suffer so in the decay of age. We thank you that uh, we are being delivered from sin by the work of your Holy Spirit, we have been delivered from the guilt of it through the sacrifice of your Son, and we are being delivered from the power of it by the work of your Spirit. And we thank you that that work will continue until it is brought to a glorious conclusion, and we will bear the image of our Lord and Savior, and we will be welcomed into your home and know the full sweetness of what it means that we are adopted as your sons. And we thank you that in the meantime, we're not left as little orphans, but you have come to live within us by your Holy Spirit, that, that down payment guaranteeing, Lord, you never undertake a, a contest and give up. And you have guaranteed by the presence of your Holy Spirit that you are here to stay with us and sin must go. And so we pray that we would give ourselves to that work and be greatly encouraged in the things that we have looked at in your word today. Help us to live every day for Jesus and waiting for his return. We do pray that it would come quickly, Lord Jesus, that we might see the defeat of all of your enemies, even within ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.